there, let me simply say that once the fall gets here and everything gets underway, school's back in, uh, I will probably be moving into the New Testament. Somewhere along that line, I'm going to start the book of Revelation once the pastor's finished. <laughs> but it'll be a different approach, so you won't be hearing the same thing. Uh, he's taking a very traditional approach to the book. I would be taking a totally different approach. I would show you but what it meant to the people to whom it was written. Okay? So when Jesus says in chapter 22, I'm coming quickly. What in the world do you mean coming quickly? That was said 2,000 years ago. It's a little late, isn't it? So we would be dealing with what it meant to those people. And talked about the Antichrist. They weren't thinking about some Antichrist 2,000 years later. In our day and age, they were thinking about an Antichrist that existed right there in their day and age and oppressed the people and ruled over the people. And uh, most likely that was a, a reference there from a historical standpoint to Nero or one of the Caesars. So that's what we're going to do. We'll take a totally different approach to this subject. And uh, then we will find the lessons that apply to us. Okay? So uh, that'll be sometime in the fall. Now let's look at Psalm 18. Okay? Psalm 18. Now there are two things that you notice immediately about this psalm. First of all, it's long. <laughs> Notice there are 50 verses. Now, fortunately, this, the nature of the song is such that we can run through, we can divide the psalm into five or six major sections and just run through it very quickly so the exposition of the text itself really isn't going to take too long, even though it has many verses. But the second thing you'll notice when you look at the psalm is there's a superscription before verse 1. That means there are some texts before verse 1 appears. And in this case, it says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this psalm is the song that David sang to God in that situation. So, what we notice from that superscription, which was not part of the original text, but this superscription was placed there, uh, you know, in B.C. times. And it's the way the rabbis and uh, the religious leaders saw this psalm. And so it has some authority with it. So the first thing we realize is that uh, it's written to the chief musician. And David writes the psalm. And he hands it over to a chief musician to put music to it. And so the first thing you need to realize is that this is a song of praise. The second thing that the superscription tells us, it deals with David's deliverance from King Saul. Now remember, King Saul wanted David dead. But he wasn't successful. David was able to escape uh, two or three assassination attempts by the king. And likely, as a result of this escape, David begins to write a song of praise to the Lord. And later on, what he does, and that means he's done this in his youth. He writes this in his youth. Because he was young when Saul tried to kill him. And then later on, he comes up against another circumstance where enemies are trying to kill him. And he revisits the song. He pulls it out. He goes to his file drawer. He says, I wrote a song in a situation like this many years ago. And he pulls it out. 
and he may have even revised it a little bit. And he turns it over to the chief musician to put it in the music. So I believe that David revisits this psalm many times. Now, if you have a critical study Bible that says this psalm was written late in David's life. But what does the superscription say? It was written when? Early in his life. When he is when he escaped King Saul. So I think that what this is is a, a passage that's written early, but he revisits it. Somewhere along the line when he becomes king, he takes this old song that he wrote and he hands it to the choir master of the temple of Jerusalem. He says, Hey, how about putting music to this? Let's make this one of our worship songs. And so this is a new worship song. Does that make sense? Okay, now there's a couple features I want you to notice about the psalm itself. The first thing I want you to realize is that this psalm, from verses 2 onward, for the most part, appears in another section of the Bible. Okay? If you turn over to 2 Samuel 22, turn over there for a second, 2 Samuel 22, that's before Kings, you'll notice this psalm is simply repeated, pretty much word for word except with a few rare exceptions. 2 Samuel, chapter 22. Now, they, the pastor said he was reading the Bible uh, through in a year. And he's, in, he's in 2 Samuel. So how do you ever read 2 Samuel? Well, ironically, as the Lord's providence would have it, today, the psalm that we're dealing with, Psalm 18, is actually repeated in 2 Samuel, chapter 22. Now, I want you to look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 22. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of whom? Hey, have you seen that before? Yeah, in fact, you saw that in the superscription. It's the superscription you saw that in. And that superscription was actually taken from that verse right there. And then... Psalm 18, verse 2 picks up, or 18 2 picks up right here. It says, The Lord is the rock, my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the Lord of my strength and whom I will trust, the shield, the horn of my salvation, a stronghold and my refuge. Now, when you go back to the psalm, look at that. Look what it says there in verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, the strength in whom I trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation. Verse for verse. Psalm 18 appears back, appears back in 2 Samuel 22. Now, very interestingly, if you look at the context of 2 Samuel 22, the context is David's armies have just defeated the Philistines. That's in 2 Samuel 22. It has nothing to do with Saul at that point. Very interesting, isn't it? Saul, does, Saul has died back in 1 Samuel. Last chapter of 1 Samuel. But in 2 Samuel 22, David is quoting this psalm, these words. And so evidently he wrote it when he escaped from Saul. Now he defeats the Philistines. He's come up against the Philistine army, these enemies, and he defeats them. He pulls out that old song that he wrote when he was delivered from Saul, and he plucks it right down there 
as it's plucked right down there in 2 Samuel 22. And now here we are in Psalm 18, and he's going to face another enemy, but he goes to his follower and he pulls out a third time. So it's a very interesting scenario when you look at that. Now, I want to show you one other thing. I want to, once you look down at verse 49, Psalm 18, verse 49. Now, verse 49 says, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, and watch this, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. The two things there, he's going to thank God among the Gentiles and sing praises to his name. That verse, Psalm 18, verse 49, is repeated twice in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 15. Now, I won't turn you over to Romans chapter 15, but you can just mark it there if you don't have it in the footnote in your Bible, Romans 15, 9. And here David says that he praises God for the Gentiles. Or Paul says, I praise God for the Gentiles in Romans 15, 9. In the context of him praising God for the Gentiles, the Gentiles are getting saved. Uh, he's evangelized the Gentiles and they've gotten saved. And guess what he does? He says, I praise you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. Because they're coming to Christ. I sing praises to your name. But in this Psalm 1849, when he says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, these Gentiles are his enemies. Uh, these are the surrounding nations that would like to defeat Israel. Uh, but David defeats them instead. And now they are defeated. And guess what David does? In the midst of these defeated Gentile heathen nations, David will give praise. So now what you begin to see is how Bible verses are used differently in the Old Testament. The same Bible verse in the Old Testament is used differently than that same Bible verse when it's quoted in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, he's giving praise among the Gentiles who have been defeated. And in the New Testament, Paul quotes that verse, and he gives praise among the Gentiles who have come to Christ. Now, let me tell you something. When you're a seminary professor, and you try to figure out how the New Testament writers interpreted Old Testament verses, this throws a lot of wrenches into your theories. Because when we teach somebody to interpret an Old Testament passage, we say, well, first of all, you need to find out what it means, you actually keep the text to find out what it means, what it means meant to its audience, and you need to find the author's intent. And whatever the author's intent is, that's the interpretation. Paul comes along and he quotes that verse and he misses the author's intent altogether. It's like he just takes it out of context and he twists it to mean what he wants it to mean. How in the world do these guys do that? If they were in my homiletics class, I'd fail them. Paul would have failed my homiletics class. He would have failed my hermeneutics class. Because at Criswell College, we don't teach it that way. So that has caused a lot of, not concern, but what it does is it, it just, it's a mystery how many of the New Testament writers uh, interpreted Old Testament passages. Okay, those are just some things I thought you might want to see. Now, let's look at the text, okay? Let's, let's look at the text itself. Psalm 18. And we will look, verses 1 through 3, we're going to call this David's intention. David's intention. What he intends to do. Look what he says. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. 
The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from my enemies. Now notice David's intention. What does David promise here? He promises three things. Notice what he intends to do. Verse 1, I will love you. Number one, he says, I will love you. That speaks of his affection. David's relationship with God starts with his love for God. That's why the scripture calls David a man after God's own heart. He has an affection toward God. I will love you. Now look at the second thing that he plans on doing. At the end of middle of verse 2. I will trust in whom I will trust. This speaks of David's dependence upon the Lord. He not only has an affection for the Lord, he has a dependence upon the Lord. And then look what he says he'll do in verse 3, right at the beginning. I will call upon the Lord. It shows you in his time of need, he turns to the Lord and he expresses his need. He cries out as a child would do its parent. So that's what David does. Now, the next thing I want you to notice in verses 1 through 3 is how David describes God. How David describes God. Look at verse 1. He says, O Lord, you are my what? My strength. Okay, now look at verse 2. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer. Now, rock, rock, fortress, and deliverer. Rock and a fortress probably mean pretty much the same thing. Because fortress is a place that you would go to be protected. And David probably many times had to end up going into the cleft of the rocks to protect him. So he says, God is my strength, God is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my strength, my shield. All these things protect you, don't they? If you have a bigger brother who's strong, hey, guess what? They'll protect you. If you have a rock that you can hide into or a rock in your hand, that's protection. A fort, that's protection. Somebody who can deliver you, that's protection. A shield, that's protection. And the horn of my salvation. And we don't know what the horn means. It's either a, a horn like a horn on a rhinoceros that serves as an offensive weapon. It could have been that. It could have been the horn of the altars. But anyway, it speaks of deliverance. Because he says, you're the horn of my salvation, or my deliverance, my stronghold. Now, that's how he describes God. But notice he modified each one of those titles. Did you see that? Look what he says about rock. What kind of rock? My rock. What kind of fortress? My fortress. What kind of deliverer? My deliverer. My God. My strength. My shield. In the horn of my salvation. So he personalizes this. Uh, relationship that he has with God. What's the end result? Look at the end of verse 3. Here it is. So shall I be saved from my enemies. That's the bottom line. That's the result. So, what does he intend to do? Here's what's happened. Here's the situation now. His enemies have surrounded him. David's always finding himself surrounded by enemies. Doesn't matter whether it's Saul and his forces, or whether it's the Philistines and those forces, or these heathen nations at this time when he's king, they're surrounding him. So, he says, here's what I intend to do. I will love the Lord. I will trust the Lord. 
I will call on the Lord. I'm talking about the one in the rock, the one who's the fortress. I'm talking about my fortress. And then the bottom line is, the end of verse 3, so shall I be saved from my enemies. So this is what he expects to happen. Now that's future. Would you agree with that? I will, I will, I will. Is that future? That's future. Okay. Now what's the basis for him expecting to be delivered? Delivered. It's the past. What God's done in the past, David believes he will do it do again in the future. Hey, have we ever seen this pattern before? It seems like there's every psalm, doesn't it? Yes, he bases his expectations in the future on what God has done in the past. Now what I want you to notice is the change of verb tenses. In verses 1 through 3, I will, I will, I will. Future. Notice the change in the verb tenses beginning in verse 4. Look what he said. The pangs of death, what? Oh, so said E-D on the end of that word? Surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, or death, look, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted, E-D, confronted me. In my distress I called, E-D, in the past tense, upon the Lord, and cried, look, E-D, after the Lord. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him even to his ears. So that's what he's done in the past. Did it work? In the past, when he cried out and his voice came to the Lord's ears, did the Lord step in and intervene? Did it work? Let's find out. Look at verse 7. Then, there, so just, as a result of doing it, then something happened. Here's what happened. Then the Lord the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. Now all these statements are, these are metaphors. God isn't like a, a dragon that has smoke coming out of his nostrils or a bull that's scraping the ground. It's portrayed with smoke coming out of his nostrils. But what he is doing is he said, when I prayed, God immediately went into action. And he gives us a graphic demonstration of what God did. So he says in verse 8, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens and came down and with darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. Now he's describing what God has done. Look, when he says he got on a cherub, the Bible talks about cherubs being the chariots of God. That means God went into action quickly. God swiftly answered David's prayer in the past. See, he flew on the wings of the wind, verse 10. He made the darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters. He came in stealthily. The enemy didn't even know what hit him when God came in to deliver David. The thick clouds of the sky and the brightness before him. His thick clouds passed with hailstones. Just out of nowhere, suddenly hailstones start falling. Coals of fire start falling. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered, notice all these past tenses, voice, hailstones, and coals of fire. The second time it said that. He sent his arrows, and he scattered the foes, lightnings with abundance, and he vanquished them. 
these are his weapons. What were his weapons? Hailstones and lightning. These are arrows. This is heaven's discharge. It's coming right down, striking these people. And uh, we don't know whether God used nature to do this. Is that what David's trying to tell us? Or whether it was like lightning coming down. It hit them. It came so fast and hit them when it hit them, they didn't even know what happened to them. You get hit by lightning, come down nowhere. And that's how quickly God acted when David prayed in the past. Look at verse 15. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The waters opened up. The foundations of the world were uncovered. That's the waters again. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Uh, this nostril and breath and smoke and snorting and all this coming out of the Lord's nostrils simply means he moved with anger and he moved swiftly with his wrath upon the enemies of David. Uh, very interestingly, when you look at these verses here, it reminds you a lot of uh, Sinai. God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt and how God opened the waters. And then there were thunderings on the mountains and lightnings and all these kinds of things. It sort of reminds you of that. And as we go down through the passage and look at verse 16, you'll see more of that language. Look what it says in verse uh, 16, for example. He sent from above. Now this is sort of interesting here because what we have in verses 7 through 15, he tells how the Lord delivered, and he paints a picture similarly how the Lord delivered Moses and the children of Israel from Egypt. Very similar when you look at those words. And you go back to Exodus, it looks very similar. But what David does is he applies these verses, which could have applied to Moses, and he applies them to himself. And notice how he applies them to himself. Look at verse 16, it says, he sent above and he took me. See that? He took me. And he drew me out of the many waters. Wait a second. He drew Moses and the Israelites out of the waters, didn't he? Ah, but David said, yeah. Same thing that God did for Moses. And the same thing that God did for the Israelites. When this heathen Gentile kingdom wanted to oppress them. Uh, he's done for me. He delivered me from the strong, my strong enemy. Notice all the pronouns. See verse 16? He took me. Look at verse 16. He drew me. Look at verse 17. He delivered me from my strong enemy. Look, from those who hated me, for those who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. So David takes this picture of how God delivered Israel and Moses, and he applies it to himself. And uh, it's very interesting how he does that. Now, on what basis does God deliver him? Okay, Why does God deliver David? It's very interesting. Look what it says in verse 20. The Lord rewarded me, look, on what basis? Here it is. According to my what? Righteousness. Because I've been a good boy. That's what he's saying. I'm a, I'm a good boy. There's the bad guys over there. Uh, when he's talking about his righteousness, he means he's lived correctly. That's how we know that this psalm precedes his fall into sin with Bathsheba. 
So he says, look, you rewarded me according to my righteousness. Look at this. Verse 20. According to, on the basis, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. So David realizes because he has loved the Lord, because he's dependent upon the Lord, because he calls upon the Lord in time of need, because he keeps the law, because he's a righteous man, God comes to his rescue. He's kept the covenant with God. Good verse 21. For, look, for here's a reason. He recompensed me. For I have kept, look, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. There's something about righteous living that brings God to your rescue. The prayers of a righteous man fail So here's David, a righteous man. Look at verse 22. For all of his judgments were before me. That means the law. All the values that Israel was to live by were before me. I kept them right before my eyes. I read the scriptures in a sense daily. I looked at the law of Moses on a regular basis. I did not put away his statutes from me. Remember some of the kings that we were looking at when we were looking at first and second kings? They didn't want to look at the law, did they? They didn't want to hear God's word from the prophet. But David is totally different. Look what he says in verse 23. He says, I was blameless before him. Now many people accuse David of a lot of things. He says that God's like, I was blameless. God, God knew me. I kept myself from iniquity. I kept myself from iniquity. Notice the emphasis on will there. And say he wasn't tempted, but he kept himself from giving in to that temptation. So he was blameless in God's sight. He kept himself from iniquity. If I store iniquity in my heart, God will not hear. But if I am living a righteous life, God hears. That opens that channel. Now look at the next word there. Therefore, based on this holy living, therefore, the Lord has recompensed me. There's this word according again. According to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now, a lot of people can accuse you of things, and you're not righteous in their sight. They want you to do things their way. When you don't, they don't like it. But in God's sight, David was righteous. That's why God answers. It's important we stay in the will of God. It's really important if we expect God to come to our rescue. Why should he come to our rescue when, he never, when we never obey him? He'd be enemy if we didn't obey him. We'd be always working against his purpose. But when we obey him, he has established a covenant with us, and it's a reciprocal relationship. And if we are obedient to him, then he comes to our rescue when we need him the help. So we go there in verse 24. Now, in verse 25, I want you to notice the change in pronouns again. Notice what I'm doing here. Not just reading the passage. I'm just pointing out a few things. I'm pointing out when the pronoun is me. I'm pointing out when the tenses are past tense, when the tenses are future tenses. Because when you read these Old Testament Psalms, you'll be surprised how many times the pronouns are changing 
and the tenses are changing. And if you don't spot that, you will clump all those verses together and it won't make sense. But once you can see that there are certain pronoun changes and certain tense changes, then you can divide those that psalm right into certain little sections. And each section makes sense on its own. And then together, they all make sense. So I want you to notice the pronoun changes. Look at verse 25. With the merciful, look, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. So the one I'm showing you is now who is David talking to? David's talking to God. In the previous verses, he was talking about God. He was talking to his about God. Uh, like when we sing the song, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Guess what? I'm talking about Jesus. But when I say, All hail King Jesus. Now who am I talking to? I'm talking to him. There's a difference there, isn't there? One's talking about him, one's talking to him. Okay? He was talking about God, but watch how he switches me. Talks right to God. So you see, you, you, yourself, verse 25, with a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. Look at verse 26. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. With the devious, you will show yourself true. For you will save the humble, will bring down the faulty loves. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will light my darkness. For by you I can run against the truth. By my God, I can leap over a wall. For as God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proof. He is a shield to all who trust Him. I should have gone to verse 30, because verse 29 ends the use, doesn't it? So notice all the use there from verses 25 to verse 29. You, 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 and he's talking about God. What is the verb tense in there? You what? You will. Ah, in the future. So now he's, he's talked about the past in verses 7 through 24, how God has delivered him on the basis of him being a law keeper and a righteous man. And now he switches and he starts talking to God. He says, Lord, based on what you've done in the past, I know you will do it in the future. And so notice all the verbs there in verses 25 through 29 are future verbs. You will show yourself merciful. You will show yourself blameless. You will show yourself pure. You will show yourself true. 27. You will save the humble. Verse 28. You will light. Look, you will enlighten my darkness. Does that make sense? And what's the bottom line? What's the result of God going to do that in the future? Look at verse 30. Here it is. For as for, as for God, this is the bottom line. This is a principle that you need to mark in your mind. It's a principle we can live with. For as God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield. To everyone in this presence, class, we trust him. That's the principle David lives by. His principle is, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. It's been tested. never failed. He is a shield. All who can trust him. And that includes us. That's our assurance right there. So, now what he does, beginning in verse 31, he elaborates on this. He explains this. 
concept, this principle. Look what he says in verse 31. For, now let me explain why I'm saying this. Because, who is God? Except the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great Redeemer, the one who rescues people. I'm talking about the one that took the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm talking about the one in the burning bush when Moses said, Who should I say send me? Sent me. And God said, Tell them, I am that I am. Yahweh sent you. The Lord sent you. He said, David said, I know I can depend upon him. Everything I've said is true. That principle is true. Because who is this God I'm talking about? He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. The same one that delivered Israel. The Redeemer God. Who is a rock? Who's this rock that I'm depending upon? Except our God. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and he sets me on high places. That means he allows me to be swift and then he teaches my hands to make war. He gives me strategies, abilities, so that, in order that, my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Some translations say steel. I don't think they had steel back in those days. That means I can take a bow that's reinforced, and I have the ability, that God's given me this ability as a warrior, to pull that bow. And because it has this bronze in it, overlay, overlaying the wood, that bow is much more stronger and the arrow will go much more further than my enemy's arrow, and most people didn't have that ability. He's given me that ability to pull that bow and let go, and that arrow will get <coughs> He says, this is who I serve. This is the God who has given me this strength. So, uh, he's describing uh, the reason why God's trustworthy. Because this is the God who's done all these things and who does these things. By the way, verse 33, the Old King James Bible says, uh, He makes my feet like hinds feet on high places, doesn't it? There's a devotional that many of you read on a regular basis called Hinds Feet in High Places. And it's a metaphor, it's an allegory actually, about how God has uh, moved us beyond the fray of things. He puts us in high places above our enemies. We get correct perspective. So this is how David describes the God that he serves and why God will deliver him. Now look at verse 35. Verse 35. He addresses God again. Now notice in verses 31 through 34, he's talking about God. He's giving you an explanation. Now look at the change of pronouns again. He starts speaking to God. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. And that's not only what you do for other people in verses 34, 1 through 34. But now you've given, also given me the shield of salvation. Now notice back in verse 30. He's a, this was our principle. He is a shield to all who trust in him. But now look at verse 35. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. You have protected me. You're delivering me by being a shield for me. Not only for others, it's for me. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my paths under me so my feet did not slip. And uh, this is a description of God giving him room to maneuver. 
because the enemies are pressing in just like they were last week and he didn't have any place to go but now we see that God has enlarged in a sense, given him room he's enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip you know, if you go in the Grand Canyon and get on the, the donkey and it goes down the Grand Canyon, there's not much room for slip over the place it's not very enlarged, you can slip and uh, that's what it is, David has had, had to be very careful but when he's cried out to God God has moved his enemies back and given him some maneuvering so that's what he's describing And then he goes on to say, look at verse uh, 30, where are we? Verse 37. I have pursued my enemies and I've overtaken them. Hey, see now, he's making his comeback. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. He takes this action. I have wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies. So I destroyed those who hated me. Necks of these enemies means he's basically defeated them. He has under his feet. They cried out. Now this is a great statement. They cried out. The enemy cried out. But there was no one to save. They cried out even to the Lord. You can believe such a thing. And he did not answer them. Very interesting that when the enemy is on the run, and the enemy gets cornered, and the enemy gets boxed in, and they're ready to be defeated by David, guess what they do? First, they just cry, anybody out there, help! And when no one responds, it says, they cried out even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. Even bad people pray, do you know that? It usually takes them getting right to the edge of death. <laughs> but finally they pray. They say, help! <clears throat> but it's too little too late. And then God doesn't answer them. But it shows me that intuitively, these heathen nations who do not worship the one true and living God, uh, when they get in this bind, intuitively, they cry out to the one true and living God. Now, they're not crying out for salvation in the sense of wanting to have a relationship with God and serving him the rest of their life, pledging their allegiance to God. Now they just want him to rescue them. Hey Lord, help me pass this text and I will, like my students do. Lord, if you heal me here, I will, but they don't mean it. And uh, God doesn't answer them. It's way too little. Too late. So then, look what we see happen. Then I beat them as fine dust. As fine as the dust. I mean, he polarized them. Like dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the street. They have delivered me from the strivings. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. Lord. David is the king who basically has enlarged his kingdom. And now the nations, even the heathen nations, are subservient to him. And they pay him tribute and pay him taxes. And, uh, because looked like he was going to be defeated, but now he's the head of the nations. He's got more land than ever. People I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, guess what they do? They said, yes, sir. They obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. And so David has 
call upon the Lord, and here we see in the past and now in the present that he defeats his enemies. So here's how he closes his song. Look what he says. The Lord lives! Blessed be my rock! This is a phrase, isn't it? Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. David doesn't take credit for it. He realizes he's won the war, but guess who he gives credit to? It's God. He delivers me from my enemy. You also lift me above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent, from the violent man. And that's, when he wrote it originally, that would have been Saul, whoever the leader of these enemies are now. Now look at verse 49. Therefore, and this is the verse that Paul quotes. Romans 15. Therefore, I've defeated the nations, I'm ruling the nations, these Gentile nations. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. They will hear your name proclaimed, and I will sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king, and shows mercy to his anointing. That's also the king. He was the anointing. And shows mercy to his anointing, to David, and to his what? Descendants evermore. That's you. You're related to David through Jesus. Jesus is called Son of David. And you have a relationship with Jesus. He's your brother. And so guess what? Here's a promise. Great deliverance he gives to the king, and shows mercy to his anointing, to David, and his descendants for 10 years. Is that what it says? That's us. <laughs> That's us in the 21st century. Uh, that word, by the way, David and his descendants, it's very interesting. The word descendants there is a singular verb, but it's a collective singular verb. Like when you say church. You one church, but there's a lot of people in it. Or one nation, but a lot of people in it. Uh, so this is a, a word that's describing some entity that is single and yet has many people associated with it. Like David and Israel, his descendants. All those people. David and the church, which includes us. We are his descendants. So there's the promise. Two key verses. Verse 30 at the end. He is a shield to all who trust him. Number one. Verse 50. Great deliverance he gives to David his descendants. That's us. Next week we'll look at Psalm 19, which deals with God's revelation. Verses 1 through 6, God's general revelation, how God reveals himself through nature. And then verses 7 through 14, God's special revelation, how he reveals himself through his That's where we'll stop and pick up there next week. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you that even though there are many verses, we see how they come together and, and make sense. Hopefully, Lord, each one of us has seen us how to read a song, how to look at a passage, look at verbs and pronouns and make sense of it. But more than that, Lord, may we grasp these principles and apply them to our lives. May we realize that you need a trustworthy. You are a shield of salvation and deliverance to all the believers. <coughs> that be us today. In Jesus' name we pray.